0: Uh, if you would do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the book of First Kings. We're in chapter three, verses one through to roughly fifteen or so. And you'll remember that we've begun this series where we're collectively walking through the book of First Kings. Now it's not going to be exhaustive. There's a lot of verses in the book of First Kings, and it would take us a long time if we actually verse by verse went through it. Uh, but I would encourage you, in in the gaps that we're leaving, Uh, to to read sort of in between the spaces that I'm teaching on, just so you can have a better sense of what's going on here. And we'll be in the book of 1 Kings for another three weeks, and then we're going to take a break for Advent. We're going to walk through that season together with every other Christian in the world. Um, And then uh, we're going to jump back into 1 Kings in January for a couple months, and then we're going to walk through Lent with every other Christian in the world. And then we'll finish 1 Kings in uh, May. Uh, But these next three weeks in particular, uh, we're not focusing on kings, but we're focusing on one king, this man whose name is Solomon. And I realize we've got a pretty diverse group that shows up on Thursday nights, and so some of you in here would would say, I am all in, I am 100% a Christian, that is who I am, that is what defines me. Uh, Others of us would say, I'm spiritual and, and might be a Christian, but I've got some things I want to think through, and then others still just Love the coffee in the back, and that 's why you 're here hanging out the the Dunkin Donuts kafifi um, But wherever it is that you land on this whole spirituality thing, uh, you grew up in the West, you grew up in a Christian culture, and so there 's just Christian things that, by virtue of you growing up in this part of the world you 've probably heard and solomon 's name would be one of them now, now, you may not be able to say anything about Solomon, may not know. Uh, what his favorite color was. I guess nobody knows that. You don't know what he looked like. You don't know his height. You don't know anything about his opinions on the 2016 election. Uh, But if I were to ask you to say something about Solomon in general, pretty much all of us would say, well, he was wise. That is his defining feature. That is what we know of him, uh, is that he was a king and a ruler who was known for his wisdom. But the fact is that that term wisdom sort of is elastic in the sense that wisdom is marked by different sorts of proficiency throughout human history. So in our modern era, if I were to tell you that somebody is wise, uh, our mind would probably go towards some sort of a technological, mathematical, scientific form of knowledge. And so if I were to say there's this king in... Uh, the Middle East right now, named Solomon, who's wise, you would think he's probably gifted in algebra and geometry and orbital mechanics, and he can construct bridges that won't fall down. And that's the sort of thing we go towards in our day and age. That is what marks wisdom. So in the Middle Ages, one of the sort of marks of wisdom was knowledge of secret things knowledge of things that were hidden and so there's this book that was produced in the middle ages that's attributed to solomon called the lesser keys of solomon the king that's a book on how to summon demons that is purportedly written by solomon does it freak you out that your pastor knows that Um, well so their thinking was well solomon is wise and wise people know things like this and so this must be what solomon's wisdom was And so in our modern age, we think he knows how to do math. In the Middle Ages, they think he knows all sorts of weird things. But in this age, in the age in which Solomon lives, wisdom is not associated with conjuring demons, nor is it associated with orbital mechanics. When somebody is said to be wise, the understanding in Solomon's day and age is that they are skilled in the art of living. That is the mark of wisdom. And so you can go to the book of Proverbs which is purported to be, this uh, not purported to be, but is in fact this book of sayings by Solomon and other wise people, and it has nothing to do with how to solve Pythagorean theorems. It has nothing to do with anything. It has everything to do with how to live in the world, how to be a good father, how to be a good husband, how to be a good king, how to be a wise man, how to be a wise woman. Because when, when the Bible talks about wisdom, that is what it means. Wisdom is skill in the art of living. Now, whatever you may make of John Calvin, I realize that everybody has a lot of different opinions in here, and that's totally cool. We're a broad tent, and we can have discussions. John Calvin does get right at the beginning of his institutes, this question of knowledge. He says, all that people know, everything that that is contained in human wisdom, it comes down to two categories, knowledge of God and knowledge of the self. And which precedes the other, we can't know. But these are the two great fountains of wisdom. What do we know about God? What do we know about ourselves? What does what we know about ourselves affect how we relate to God? What does what we know of God affect how we operate in the world? These are the two defining features of human wisdom. How we live is not a simple question. How we live is far more difficult uh, than orbital mechanics and computational physics. How we live encapsulates all sorts of other questions like what is good, what is right, what is just, and not just in the cut and dry situations, but in the complexities of life. How do we live is bound up in questions of who is God and who am I? And tonight we come to this portion of scripture that has become so famous, where Solomon asks for wisdom, skill in the art of living, so that he might shepherd the people of God. And I think in so doing, we'll see the wisdom of Christ as we work through this text together. But our our passage doesn't begin with wisdom. It actually begins with a wedding. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh, for Pharaoh's daughter, and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house, and the house of the Lord, and the wall beyond Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the Lord. So we begin not with wisdom, but with a wedding in this text. And really what we begin with is a marriage alliance. That is to say that Solomon marries the daughter of Pharaoh so that Pharaoh has some skin in the game about Israel surviving as a nation. And there's people who debate whether this is actually a good or bad idea. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the Bible doesn't really make a huge effort to sanitize its figures. It just sort of presents them as they are. And so we saw a couple chapters earlier. David is this man after God, God's own heart, who is also a king who never tells his kids no, um, who is also sort of just passive towards the end of his life, but at the same time is the beloved king of Israel. He, he is not just one thing, any more than anybody is any one thing. He's, he's a mixed bag. And so there is this debate here. Did, did Solomon do something foolish in marrying the daughter of Pharaoh? Is this one of the beginnings of Solomon's downfall, which will inevitably come by the middle of the book? And I would venture to say that it is. You look through the Old Testament, and there's all sorts of warnings for the kings of Israel. Do not marry foreign women. Do, do not marry into foreign nations. Now, Before you go uh, down sort of the racial lines that we're prompted to in our day and age, it has nothing to do with the, the biological descendancy of these people. It has everything to do with the fact that foreign people worship foreign gods. And so there is this warning, do not marry into the nations of the world because they do not worship the same God as you will, and you will very likely be tempted to worship the things that they worship. And so the problem here for Solomon is not that he married the daughter of Pharaoh. The problem here is that he married the daughter of Pharaoh who shows no evidence of ever leaving behind the gods of Egypt when she becomes the bride of the king of Israel. Solomon marries the daughter of Pharaoh. But there's a, there's a bigger problem here that you kind of see when you think about it in the context of what David said last week. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that David sort of has this illusion in his farewell speech that I hope that you, Solomon, will be like a new Joshua. And Joshua was this figure who, along with Moses, had led Israel out of the nation of Egypt and into the Promised Land. And David says, I hope you'll be like that. But Solomon is now marrying Israel back into the nation of Egypt. He is, rather than leading them to freedom, he is bringing them back to the very people who had them as slaves. So you see here that, that Solomon seems like he might be a good king, but even at the beginning he's starting to make really bad choices. He's got a lot of poor decisions that are beginning to stack up against him, even at the foundation but there's more. We're, we're told that there are these things called high places in verse 2 where the people of Israel have been sacrificing because there is no house that's been built for the name of the Lord. We're told Solomon loved the Lord in verse 3, walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Truth be told, we don't know what the high places are other than that they are what they sound like, high places. Uh, there are these places on mountains in Cana, that Canaan, I'm sorry, um, there are these places on mountains where it's likely that the people who lived there before the Israelites were sacrificing people and other things to false gods. And it seems like when Israel got there, they said, well, this altar's as good as anyone and it's got a great view. Why don't we just kind of hang out here and worship God on these old pagan altars? And as you kind of read through 1 Kings, the faithfulness of a king tends to be judged on whether they tore the high places down or left the high places standing. And so... Solomon has married into uh, a foreign nation that worships foreign gods. And there are these high places where Solomon is worshiping the Lord, but he's worshiping the Lord in places where pagan gods are also worshipped. But right in the middle of all of this, we have this statement in verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord. Now, that may not seem like much to you because we just throw that on people. Do you know Joe at Bay Life? Yeah, he loves the Lord. It's a real Baptist way to compliment somebody. Yeah, Jamie, he, just, he loves the Lord so much. He just loves the Lord. But as far as I can tell, this phrase is never applied to anybody else in the Old Testament. It's not even applied to David. It's, a, it's expected of people to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Solomon is the only one who does it. He truly, and in the best sense of the word, Loves the Lord. So what are we to make of this? He's making some bad choices in his relational life. He's making some poor choices in his worshiping life. And yet he is said to be a man who loves the Lord. When nobody else, as far as we can tell in the Old Testament, is doing the same. Solomon is like all of us. Solomon is like each and every one of us. Even at our best, we are a mixture of loves. Our affections are never undivided. For all of the good in the greatest of us, there is still this sort of mixture of, of wandering in our hearts. You know, this hymn that we, we sing so often here, Bind my wandering heart to thee, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, and prone to leave the God I love. Uh, it's true of Solomon. It's true even at the beginning. But there is this symbiotic relationship between what we do and what we love. They can't ever fully be distinguished from one another because what we do becomes what we love and what we love drives what we do. And sometimes our loves change based on what we expose ourselves to. So this is a great example. For 24 years of my life, I did not love coffee. I hated coffee. I actually would drink coffee and feel a sense of revulsion in my body, like shudders down my spine. I would start to perspire, like I would be all sweaty. It was foul to me. And there came a point at about 24 where um, I wasn't sleeping much. And so I would make up for that lost time like during the workday or just in parking lots on my way home from work and be like, I'm tired. I'm gonna pull off and just sleep in the parking lot. And then it would be midnight and I would wake up and I'm like covered in sweat because it's Florida and there's no air conditioning in my car. And so I said, you know what? Maybe I should start drinking coffee and, and just see if it helps me stay awake for like the things in my life that I'm supposed to be awake for. The first month, absolutely foul. The second month, I was like, this is tolerable in the way that like Robitussin is tolerable. Uh, The third month, I was like, this may actually be gross, but I feel nothing anymore, and I just keep (laughs) drinking it. And and I, I won't tell you I'm at the point where I love coffee. I drink a lot of coffee. But there's not anything in me that delights in it. But I certainly don't hate it anymore either. Because day in and day out, cup after cup, and gallon after gallon, what I have done has changed what I love. And maybe, maybe you're in a relationship right now that began as a really long friendship. Or maybe you've been in such a relationship uh, where this person was not of romantic interest to you in the slightest bit. But day in and day out and week in and month in and year in, they've been there for you until somehow the affections of your heart begin to change through familiarity. Because what we do eventually shapes what we love, and then what we love begins to shape how we act. The point is this, like we're told in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord. And that was true. Solomon did indeed love the Lord. But Solomon, by chapter 11, has taken hundreds of foreign wives for himself that worship hundreds of foreign gods. And day in, and day out, and year in, and year out, that begins to change him. To where in chapter 11, it's no longer said of him, Solomon loves the Lord. It says, Solomon loved many foreign women. And Solomon will build the temple of the Lord. He'll tear down the high places where the idols were worshipped. He'll build the temple of God in the city of Jerusalem. This thing that David had longed to do, but couldn't do. But day in and day out, being surrounded by the worship of false gods, by chapter 11, Solomon is now building high places to worship pagan gods rather than tearing them down. you got to hear me when I say this. It will be no different for you if you are not careful of the things that you allow to shape you. And they won't shape you after one exposure. They won't shape you after two exposures. It will be day in and day out and year in and year out until your loves begin to change. Now, I mentioned this at the beginning of our service. That's, that is what Christian liturgy and that, that's what Christian worship is meant to do. It's meant to shape us to love the right things. And you're not going to probably feel different after this service or the next service or the next service, but two years down the road, three years down the road, 10 years down the road, you will find yourself formed to the things you have subjected yourself to. And you will begin to love and live in light of those things. So here at the beginning, Solomon opens the door to what is going to destroy him when he forges a marriage alliance with Pharaoh of Egypt. How different, though, Solomon's greater son is going to be. Solomon takes a bride from the nations and he is corrupted by her and buy his brides from the nations. Whereas the greater Solomon, Christ, has a bride from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And rather than being corrupted by her, he makes her holy. He raises her up rather than her drawing him down. And rather than the sinfulness of the church causing Christ to love wicked things, Christ changes the things that we love so that we now love what is good and not what is evil. So Solomon worships at the high places. We're told in verse 4 that he went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. To, uh, for the, That was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give you. So it's probably worth qualifying this portion of scripture here. Um, because I realize that all of us are coming from different backgrounds. Some of us are coming from more um, rigid and conservative churches. Others are coming from more charismatic and open churches. And and God appears here very clearly to Solomon in a dream. Let me just say this. The Bible covers the span of the whole of human history. Um, There's some gaps there. like We don't know how long between um, Jesus' first coming and his second coming there will be. But over the course of that whole span of human history and scripture, there's maybe ten to fifteen instances where God speaks to someone in a dream. Total. And if you think about how much time the Bible covers, and how many lives the Bible documents, and how many people are recorded in there, ten to fifteen says that your chances of God revealing your spouse to you in a dream are probably not very good. And so, so I would just caution you: if you have a dream tonight about the person in your biology lab. Don't take that as gospel, that that's what God is calling you to. Um, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying caution. I, I want to urge you towards caution there. Maybe seek discernment from brothers and sisters. But in this instance, God appears to Solomon in a dream, and he asks Solomon this question. He says, ask what I will give you. That is to say, tell me what you want. And it's this interesting Period in in the history of Israel where the uh, the under shepherd of Israel the the lesser king that is Solomon is visited by the greater king which is the Lord and he says as sort of your coronation gift you're king now you have the chance to ask of me anything it's it's kind of this godfather moment where on the the day of the daughter's wedding you can ask anything of me on the day of Solomon's coronation the Lord says to him what do you want. And so Solomon uh, sort of begins, and he doesn't begin by asking anything. We're told in verse 6, Solomon says, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. You have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and you have given him a son to sit on the throne to this day. And now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David my father. And although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern your great people? So Solomon begins to make this request of God. And he doesn't sort of get to the point and say, hey, this is what I want. But he starts recounting these things that God has done. He starts talking about God's faithfulness to David, and then he starts talking about God's faithfulness to the covenant, and then he starts talking about God's faithfulness to Solomon himself, and then he starts talking about the fact that this nation of Israel is absolutely enormous, and I am but a child. He's, he's not really a child. That's a way of showing humility. He's old enough to marry a queen of Egypt. Um, and so he's just. He, it's almost as if he's talking to himself. It's almost as if he's, he's sort of thinking like, oh, this is, this is who I'm talking to the one who is faithful to my father, the one who's been faithful to me, the one who's placed me over this nation. And he does all this before he ever actually asks God for anything. Solomon is recounting as he approaches God the history of God's faithfulness before he ever makes a request of him. You know, the, the Jewish people in this day, they they would often talk about the Lord and they would refer to him as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. That's not just like a helpful way of denoting which God we're talking about. That is a way of reminding themselves as they talk about God, hey, this is what he's done. This is what he's like. This is who we're talking about. This is who we trust in. This is the character of the God that we believe in. This is the God who called Abraham out of his home country and carried him faithfully. Now, this is the God who spared Isaac the knife on the mountain This is the God who led the people of Israel out of Egypt and shut the mouth of Pharaoh. This is the God who spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. This is the God who I am approaching. And Solomon says, you're the one who's been faithful to my father. You've been faithful to the covenant. Before I ask anything of you, I just need to recognize your faithfulness. And I wonder, I don't think we're sinning here, but I wonder if we're missing something and doing violence to our prayers by approaching God so flippantly. And not just recalling as we approach him who he is and what he's done. Hey, God, what's up? It's Travis. That's fine. But how different my prayers would look if, if I were to remember that this God who I'm haying is also the God who brought judgment on nations, is also the God who spared uh, the nation of Israel in spite of our sin, is, is also the God who forgave David in the midst of his adultery with Bathsheba, is, is also the God who Isaiah saw in the throne room of heaven and said, woe is me, I am undone, is also the God of the cross, is also the God of the virgin birth, is, is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How different our prayers would look if we, if we took a note from Solomon and just remembered who we're talking to, The the weight of the one to whom we speak, his wisdom, his power, his faithfulness, his goodness, his kindness. And so Solomon recounts God's faithfulness. And finally he gets to his request. God says, I'll give you whatever you want. And Solomon finally says, here's what I want. Now this this is a dangerous thing to think through. If you were offered anything, what would you ask for? Um... Once in my life, I have had the opportunity to just see what my sinful little heart would ask for, and that would have been in kindergarten. Uh, and it's not that I actually had the ability to get whatever I wanted, but my friend, who we're going to call Steve, convinced me that he had a genie at home. And this is just who I was in kindergarten. I believed Steve when he said he had a genie. And he told me that if I drew him pictures of Power Rangers in art class, and if I played with him on the playground, he would ask his genie to give me anything. And I believed Steve. It was not counted to me as righteousness. <laughs> and so, kindergarten Travis was like, I mean, I told my parents, and I don't know if they just sort of humored me. I really don't remember what they said. But I was like, he's got a genie, and the genie can do anything. And I've drawn him Power Ranger pictures all week. And so, I find, I, like, I'm, I remember as a kid, like, sitting in the bathtub and just thinking about what I wanted from this genie. And it was, give me the Power Ranger's powers, give me Spider Man's powers and I want a pool in my backyard because all my friends had a pool. (laughs) And I didn't have a pool, but I figured if we're dealing with a genie who can do anything, then Power Rangers, Spider-Man, pool. But all of those requests in my kindergarten heart were all about me. They were all requests that would have made my life better and more fun and more interesting and more entertaining. And Solomon, unlike my friend Steve's genie, is approaching the one who can actually give him anything that he asks for because all things rightfully belong to him. And here is what Solomon asks for. He says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. Because Solomon has this opportunity to ask for whatever it is that he might want. God will go on to say that you could have asked for long life, you could have asked for riches, you could have asked for power, but you've asked for wisdom. And why is it that Solomon has asked for wisdom? He's asked for wisdom so that he can lead the people of God well. He hasn't asked for wisdom so that he'll be impressive and he can win who wants to be a millionaire. He hasn't asked for wisdom so that people will just think he's smart. He hasn't asked for wisdom so he can just woo the people in his royal palace. He says, I need wisdom so that I can shepherd your people. He asks for blessing, but not so that it might terminate on himself, but he asks that God would bless him with something that would allow him to bless other people. And it's as if God says, finally, one of you terrible kings gets it. That that this nation of Israel has been called out of the world and blessed so that they might be a blessing to the nations. That's his promise to Abraham. And finally, you understand that, that the blessings that I'm pouring out on you are not meant to terminate on you. You're not meant to be smart so you can tell kids in your AP psych class how smart you are. But so that you might lead these people well, that you might have skill in the art of living, and that my people under your hand might flourish. Hey, and this, this is true of, of these people, or of this people in this room. It, if... And I know that it's not an if, but it's true. Uh, In the ways that God has blessed every person in this room with your skills, with your talents, maybe it is that you do in fact have wisdom. And you are gifted in things like biology or physics or mathematics. Uh, Maybe you are skilled in the arts. Uh, Maybe you are skilled in uh, conversation and counseling and hospitality. In all of these gifts that have been distributed among the people of God, they're not meant to terminate on you so you can beef up your OK Cupid resume. They're not meant to terminate on you so that you can be impressive to other people. They're given unto you so that you might bless God's people through them. You are blessed so that you might, in fact, be a blessing both to the church and to the world. This is what pleases God about Solomon's request: is that he's not asking it for himself. He's asking to be blessed for the sake of other people. But, but notice again what exactly Solomon asked for. He says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Solomon asks for the ability to discern right from wrong, good from evil, things a king needs to be able to do. Because the king is the highest court in the land of Israel. And as you go on, there's this very famous story about Solomon having to make a legal decision and figure out what the right course of action is. But again, for the third time in this book, you hear this echo of Eden. Because what Adam reaches out and takes is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he takes it so that he will be like God. So that he will be exalted And stand in the place of God. And God responds with curse because you have sought knowledge and wisdom and blessing, not so that you might bless other people, but so that you might dethrone the true king. Solomon asks God, I need the ability to discern between good and evil. Why? So that I might bless your people. It is the acquisition of wisdom for the sake of the people of God, and God is pleased. You know, I had this conversation with a friend from seminary a couple months back, and he was just telling me about this season he went through where he was really struggling with some of, some of the theological issues that he was working through in his class. And he wrestled with this question of how can, how can I really know the truth? Like when, when one person says one thing about a verse and another person says another thing and they're both really smart, how, how do I know what the truth is? And that's, that's a reasonable question to wrestle through. But one of the things that he said at the end was that he came to realize something about truth, was that it was not just this abstract idea. It's not this out there philosophical concept. Truth is not an idea, but truth is a person. And when he came to realize that truth was a person, that was the first step towards him beginning to sort of come to some assurance as he studied the things of God. And I think, I think that's true of, of any virtue or valuable thing that we could talk about here. Love is not simply an ideal or like a quiver in your liver when you hang out with somebody who you think is nice. Ultimately, love is a man from Nazareth. And kindness is not simply a character trait that is attractive, although it is in fact attractive. Uh, But kindness is in fact a carpenter who lived about 2,000 years ago. And ultimately, wisdom is not simply neurons firing in the brain of man. Solomon asks God for wisdom, to lead the people of God. But Solomon is a temporary king, and he will not lead them forever. And God grants him wisdom. But the true king of the people of God, who will not be dethroned and will not be succeeded, is not simply gifted with wisdom but he is the wisdom of God incarnate this passage that Beth read for us and and if that is true of Christ that God in Christ has reconciled the world to himself and in Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be hidden and if wisdom is what we've said it is it's skill in the art of living this biblical understanding then ultimately, you and I, we will find wisdom in our own lives only when our lives are lived in obedience to the one who is fully human, the only one who has ever truly lived, the only one in whom there is life and life in abundance, the wisdom of God, the Word made flesh. Solomon seeks it, and he receives it for a time, and Solomon is no more. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. And if we would be wise, we would bend the knee to him and walk in obedience.